Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to chsrhealthylife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. chsrhealthylife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. You're tuned in to Real Time Relationships. Enter the world of successful relationships. You'll get insider tips on how to navigate the perils and pitfalls of modern dating and up-close-and-personal real-life stories you can relate to from Dr. Camarado's personal clients. Dr. Marianne Camarado is a relationship expert, author, and media personality who continues to enjoy her own long-term successful relationship. And now, here's Real-Time Relationships with Dr. Marianne Camarado. Welcome to Real-Time Relationships. I'm Dr. Mary Ann Camarado, and I'm so glad you're here taking your precious time to drop in a little deeper exploring issues related to relationships. I like to talk about relationship as uh, the realm of the four hungers, one of my teacher says, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with the divine, our relationship and intimate partnership, and our relationship to our community, friends, humanity, all the four quadrants. Uh, as relational creatures, uh, as far as I'm concerned, everything is about relationships. So we're glad that you've taken care to take a look at, work on, or uh, investigate and explore the realm of relationship with us today. Um, being a person who's fascinated with relationships, I'm particularly interested in what impacts us unconsciously at that layer where we're not necessarily paying attention. Sometimes it shows up in dreams, uh, repetitive patterns, projections, shadowy material. I I just am uh, fascinated with those pieces, mostly because they have a tendency to steer our lives in directions that cause a lot of suffering, angst, pain, challenges, stuff we don't want, basically. <laughs> so I'm interested in, in how that works and and uh, how to be in relationship with that unconscious aspect. And today, uh, I want to talk about some of these unconscious influences as it relates to how our health and wellness impacts our relationships and vice versa. Now, there's a lot of research that points to the importance of relationships when it comes to our overall health. And on this program, I'm going to talk with clinical neuroscientist, Dr. Mario Martinez, who so many of you know and love and will be delighted to uh, be listening in today. Uh, We're going to be talking with him about the impact our relationships have on our health and how our cultural beliefs affect our health and the longevity we have with ourselves and our relationships. For those of you who don't know or are less familiar or just need a refresh, Dr. Mario Martinez is a clinical neuropsychologist who specializes in how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. And uh, he teaches his theory and practices of biocognitive science to the general public, the rest of us. We're lapping up anything biologically or neuroscience-based A lot of us nerds love this, millions of us. Uh, Dr. Martinez proposed 
he proposes based on credible research um, evidence that longevity is learned and the causes of health are inherited. We're going to be talking about that as well today. Um, so let's just get started and introduce our gorgeous human being, uh, Dr. Mario Martinez, to the program. Welcome to Real-Time Relationships. We're so glad you're here. Oh, thank you for having me. I always have a oh. lot of fun with our interviews. <laughs> Yes. Me too. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, one of the things when I was thinking about having you on the program and you had reached out and I thought, okay, I've, a lot of our listeners know we've been taking a different direction. We're wanting to get more intimate about uh, our conversation dropping beneath the surface. And, you know, so many of us have a hard time integrating all this information, right? We don't have time, A, and and it's hard to make some of these complex uh, theories and all of this research accessible for us in our day-to-day -day life. But I know in the past you and I have been able to find ways to take this complex material, and, I mean, you're devoted to this, helping people access it so they can really apply it to their lives here and now. Uh, that being said, I was thinking about our definition of health in this culture, mostly because I've been learning a lot about uh, the Vedic culture and um, their whole model of health, which is holistic, for example. Let's talk about our Western cultural model of health, Dr. Martinez. Uh, explain what that means and sort of where you sit with all of that, because this is a real important premise for most of the work that you do. Yes, and as you mentioned, the, the culture is so important in, in weaving our reality. So in this culture, we have a basically a, a biomedical model where we're seen as mechanical uh, beings. And as long as you don't find anything uh, um, clinically uh, wrong with the person, then you're healthy. So health is determined as the absence of pathology. But uh, <laughs> I believe that uh, that is a lot more. Well, <laughs> And, uh, and unfortunately, when we do that, instead of doing health care, what we're doing is pathology management. Mm -hmm. um, so um, my point is that uh, uh, we have to go beyond just that, that being healthy. Uh, wellness is the sense of having good health, but in addition to that, having a sense of uh, meaning in life, having a purpose, having meaningful relationships, as you said. That's the wellness, and that's really immunologically the best way that people respond because you could have a very... Uh, healthy as far as a clinical um, um, profile and still not be happy and still not have a good immunological function that doesn't show up in, in clinical um, studies. Yeah. So I, I would say that, that wellness is really what I, uh, what I strive for with myself and with the people that I try to convince to, to jump into that. Yeah, that's well, a, a great bit of context that's really important. What comes up for me when I hear that, two things strike me. Uh, you said pathology management. I'd like you to expand on that a little more for folks who, you know, even when I hear that word, sometimes I go off into the psychological train. What does that actually mean? And then, um, well, let me start with that, and then we'll go to the next piece. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I think medicine is, is wonderful. Uh, the biomedical component of medicine is wonderful. Uh, and but what happens, though, is that in, in science, unfortunately, we study the averages. We look at the normal curve and we study the difference between an average and an average. So we really don't study anybody. We study the, the average information. Mm -hmm. And when you come out of that average and you go to either side of the, of the curve, you go to the tails of the curve, 
then there's no interest in that. In fact, they're called nuisance variables <laughs> when you mm -hmm. study nuisance mm -hmm. variables. So you miss out on the outliers, like, for example, in my case with centenarians, people that live over 100, healthy, they, those are not studied as much because they're, they're outliers. So that's the first part. The second part is that if you fall out of that norm, then in, some, in, in most cases it's very little that they can do for you. So it becomes like a palliative kind of care. Well, you have diabetes, you're going to have diabetes for the rest of your life, and we're going to uh, diminish the deterioration in the symptoms so you can live with it for the rest of your life. So the emphasis is not on the cure, but on the maintenance of the pathology. And I think part of that is because, of course, they're, we're very complex, but also because we look narrowly at uh, the person as a, bio, as a biomedical or, the, or a biomechanical process. For example, the heart is definitely has biomechanical uh, processes. It's a pump, and, and it pumps blood, and, and it, that has a mechanical. But the heart is a lot more than that. The heart is a, uh, um, a, a realm of uh, the love that a person has, and you have... It has its own hormones that regulate itself. It, it, it uh, responds to uh, words, for example. You can have, say a word, and you can get somebody out of a out of a, a, a heart rhythm. So it's a lot more than that, and that's the biosymbolic component that I talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, some of us. Uh, my the other thank you for that. My other uh, the other thing that came up for me when I was listening. Um, not sure if other folks have this come up too, but this this idea of what you're calling uh, or what we know as biology of belief, right, like you're alluding to, there's this way that we know things. And then there's the way that we've been trained to know things that are in conflict, the cultural inherited beliefs, right, the things that are passed through from generation to generation. And in our Western model, um, what I'd love you to speak about is how we can, even those of us who really feel steeped on our spiritual path and we're taking a more holistic approach, bottom line, when we get frightened or when something feels threatening to our lives, illness or imbalance, we, we will resort to that belief that the, the Western model knows better than our own body, our own heart, our own mind. Can you speak to this? Uh, yes. Um, I think that... Um the way the way to describe culture, uh, I, uh, anthropologists have argued for, for years on this, but I want to make it very clear, very operational. Culture is really the collective belief about important things in life, like aesthetics, ethics, wellness, things like that. <clears throat> and the way to explain it best is to imagine that the world has infinite possibilities of being interpreted, and the, the culture creates a, a weaves of fabric around that world, and our cultural brain interprets and reads the fabric rather than the world. So it reads it basically culturally, uh, and whatever that culture teaches you, then you uh, will actually respond to it. And one of the reasons is that we, um, before we were, uh, before we had language, we had much more epigenetics like, like uh, animals do. Uh, a mm -hmm. rat will uh, respond to another rat when, uh, for example, one rat gets poisoned, it's given poison. And then when they groom again, both rats will never be, eat that poison again, but also their offsprings will not eat the, the, the poison. So it's an, an epigenetic transfer. We lost a lot of that with our language because language says, hey, don't eat that. This is, a, this is dangerous. <laughs> but what we gained, though, is that in order for the immune system to continue to protect us, it had to become biosymbolic. It had to respond to symbols in order mm -hmm. to compensate for that. So if you say to somebody, very specifically, you shame someone, and when you shame someone, that's a word. If I say you're so stupid, that's a word. But yet the immune system will secrete molecules of inflammation. 
So it's biosymbolic. Wow. That is powerful. You there? Yes. Yes. So, okay, so I, good. No, no, no. I just, I, I think I took my breath away just for a moment. The idea that my brain secretes molecules of inflammation, uh, and you can feel it. If we really slow down, you can actually feel it if you're paying attention, right? Yes. If you, if you shame someone, you know, you notice that their, their face and their neck gets uh, red. That's yeah. because it, it, it's opening up the vascular system to let the inflammatory molecules go up as if there was some kind of infection. Wow. wow, that's so powerful. So here we are, enculturated in particular ways, and the question I have then is to what degree is this conscious or not? Like when you say that, okay, you know you're being shamed, but I have to bring my attention to it. You know, where, where does the line get drawn on what's unconscious enculturation and conscious, or is this just an ongoing process? Well, you have to look at, that's a really good question, because you have to look at the culture. In, in essence, with, with uh, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but in, in essence, uh, our Western culture is more individualist. It puts attention on the individual uh, and, uh, and, and how the individual will grow and, and succeed and all that. The Asian cultures are more collectivist. They, they look at the group. They look at the uh, interaction between the group and the nation. And so the individual is a part of. So if you're shaming someone here and you say to someone, in, in, for example, in an indi in a individualist society like uh, U.S., U.K., Australia, you say, you're so dumb, you can never do anything right. That person will have to, that molecular uh, secretion, tumor uh, uh, necrosis factor and to leukins too. But if you say it to a nation, they will respond if they consider that you have shamed the group, the country, or the family. So the immune system waits for the culture to give it an interpretation before it responds. Wow. Okay. So the implications here are so potent. I mean, we're laying the groundwork here as we move into a deeper conversation about health in the context of relationship, right? So let's talk about what are some of the prevailing cultural beliefs um, that we have. You brought up shame as a great example, but in terms of health and wellness in the context of relationship, what have you noticed over the years that are some of the prevailing cultural beliefs we have and ones that could really limit us in terms of accessing health and wellness? Yes. Uh, well, first is that obsession with, with, with looking young. Uh, second, uh, the myth of family illnesses. Family illnesses are a propensity, not a, a genetic sentence. Uh, so we taught that, and so for example, let, let me show you how we can learn an illness or how we can trigger an illness. Let's say you have a, a, your family uh, diabetes type 2. Mm -hmm. So your doctor will say, well, you know, your family has diabetes type 2, so mm -hmm. most likely you're going to end up with uh, diabetes type 2. Mm -hmm. so what you go into helplessness because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a given sentence. Helplessness causes immune suppression. It causes all kinds of problems that can actually trigger genes that can express the uh, diabetes. So your, the helplessness actually can trigger the genes that, that express illness wow. in, in a chronic way. So that's one way to do it. Once. Now, uh, one way to do it is to say, look, um, family illnesses are a propensity that you can actually reverse or at least you can, uh, you can prevent it. If you look at people in your family, because the brain needs evidence, it can't just uh, um, imagine Pollyanna-ish kind of things. You say, look at somebody, look at Uncle Joe, who died at 95 in his sleep. 
no diabetes. Yeah. And then begin to look at Uncle Joey, Joe, and you will see that he's functioning totally different. He's an outlier. He's not functioning with him. And, and the, uh, the conventional medical community, not all, will say, but look, the father got it, the uh, brother has it. Well, they all have the propensity, and they all live together. They eat the same food, and, the, and they have the same collective consciousness. Ooh. Right. So get out. <laughs> That's right. Run around for the hill. Find the outlier. Find the outlier. <laughs> yeah, right. See what he's doing or she's yeah, doing, it, right? It, it, that's right, and they're doing it differently. That's what I learned from centenarians. When I started studying centenarians, people who were over 100, I only studied the ones that are healthy, not the ones in nursing homes vegetating. Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. And what I found was that 20% is genetics. The rest is bioinformational, biocultural, what they eat, the way they live. But it's not just diets. There's no centenarian diet. Some of them eat meat, some don't. Some drink milk, some don't. Some smoke, some don't. But what they don't do is they don't do anything in excess. The modern mm they do not out of fear but because they're so happy with themselves so fulfilled that they don't need to abuse anything including themselves oh, that's just amazing all right before we get into the implications of that let me back up a little bit and let you and I talk about some of the inherited beliefs just so folks can translate this I think it's super important for example in my family there's a rash of alcoholism so one of my family members is convinced that anybody who even picks up a glass of alcohol, this person will actually say out loud, oh, they're an alcoholic. And I constantly have to say to this person, no, that doesn't mean they're going to be an alcoholic. That's not how it works. And I've been sort of the, you know, fighting for this forever. Uh, another one in my family is um, macular degeneration on my husband's side. Oh, I'm, I must be because dad had it and so-and-so had it. And, so, you know, fighting some of these, what would we call them, familial means or even, you know, whatever, uh, is, is really po powerful. How about you and your family? What, what, what did you in potentially inherit and dodge? No, it is. And, uh, well, uh, heart problems uh, on, the, on, on, the, on my mother's side of the family. Uh, but I'll give you some information on the alcoholism because that's really important. The studies uh, on alcoholism are based on... Uh, the American Medical Association determined that alcoholism was a disease, was an illness, in 1959, based on really poor research. And the research has gone on and on and on that alcoholism is an illness. I don't think it's an illness. I think it's a, a, a dysfunction, a cultural, social cultural dysfunction with some propensities uh, genetically. And the studies will show, well, let's look at uh, twins. This is identical DNA, and both twins became alcoholics because their the parents were alcoholics. Bad research. The latest research is looking at the interaction of genetics and environment. So twins are studied, and some twins will go this place, and the other one will go the other place, uh, the twins that have been adopted. And the twins, both twins from, uh, uh, from alcoholic parents, one of them goes to a stressful environment, and the other one goes to a nourishing environment. The nourishing environment, they don't become alcoholics. In the stressful environment, they become alcoholics. So much for genetics. It's only a that's powerful. And an important differentiation for all of us so we can start to examine some of these inherited beliefs and ideas that you're saying, actually, we have more agency than we think we do, right? Yes. The agency is given up when you say that the universe is covering your back. Yeah. Beautiful. The universe is too busy expanding 
to take care of your new car or your new relationship, but you have a lot of agency that's better than the universe. Yeah, beautiful. Talk about heart disease a little bit. Can we play that one out? Because I know a lot of people are frightened. I know it's the same formula, but let's just carry that out, why we know that's just not the, the truth. Uh, well, again, because it's a propensity, and you also have to look at the outliers, because if you have a propensity for something, let's say what are you eating, what kind of uh, uh, relationships do you have, um, do you exercise? Uh, do you uh, do things that are, uh, in a way, in mm -hmm. so uh, then what you do is you look for the outlier, and the outlier that does not develop the uh, heart problems eats differently, uh, functions differently, has a different kind of relationship. And there's a major study at Harvard that's a, the longest, the most longitudinal study. It's 75 years uh, they've been doing it. And the only indicator, the main indicator they found for health if not the cholesterol or hypertension, is that, that that individual believes that they have someone in their life that they can count on. Ah, that's gorgeous. Hold that thought. We're going to break, everybody. We'll be right back right here on Real-Time Relationships with Dr. Mario Martinez. When we come back, we'll be talking about guardians of the heart, how you and your relationship can help you stay healthy. Back in just a minute. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? You know, I've been single for 15 years, and at this point, I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at it 50-50 and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real-Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. For the best in business class travel, count on Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air has the best price guarantee, 24-7 customer service, and easy booking online or by phone. To experience your hassle-free journey, start by going to HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Cheapo Air. Reach your health and fitness goals. Whether you want to lose weight, learn to dance, build muscle, or just live healthy, Beachbody gives you unlimited access to the nation's most popular fitness and weight loss solutions. Visit our advertiser page and click on Beachbody now. Radio your way. HealthyLife.net. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Mario Martinez is with us today. We're talking about health and wellness, the effects our beliefs have on relationships and how our relationships can affect uh, our health and wellness. Uh, right before the break, we had some great examples, Dr. Martinez, about how we can actually uh, affect our health 
more than we ever thought. The 20% is about genetics. It's really about decisions we make, finding uh, different people in our lives to inspire us towards uh, healthy living. You call them outliers. The folks that are living to 95, uh, practicing uh, moderation and so forth, we, we don't have to buy into the beliefs is what I'm saying. Let's talk about how we can do that before we move into how our relationships can keep us, he keep us healthy. How do we avoid getting sucked into all this cultural, uh, you know, propaganda about that, you know, this makes you sick or don't eat that or, you know, whatever, the whole swirl. What are some suggestions you have for us uh, about how to move towards more personal agency and advocacy uh, here? Well, first what I'd like to do is kind of uh, show how, how we construct these, these uh, uh, constraints and how to come out of them. What we do is when we're born, we're designed, not programmed because we're not machines, we're designed to pay attention to what I call cultural editors. These are the people that, that the culture gives them power in a context. Mother at, at home, father at home, um, a, um, a doctor in the hospital, uh, clergy in the church, a teacher in the classroom. And the moment we're born, we have that design already. So we look for the breast or we look for something to give us um, the, um, the satiate, uh, to, to be able to, to satisfy hunger. But what happens, though, is that those culture editors have tremendous power for nocebo to, to help or nocebo to cause harm. So the, the child is born and the child is, is hungry and they have a neuroendocrinological response, that they have a bio, biology going on that the bio, biology says, I'm hungry. Then they see a breast or they see a bottle and the hunger uh, is satisfied. <clears throat> There's a physiology there. So they don't know. They don't have cognition. They don't have a language. But they have a physiology that, that, that actually says, this is hunger. This is the lack of hunger. Later when the language comes in and they say, oh, that's mom. That's the breast. This is a bottle. They already have a physiology. And then it becomes biosymbolic. And the symbol becomes biology. And then when that person later says to you, well, in your family, this is what happens. In your family, you have cancer. Tremendous power of nocebo. Tremendous power of doing harm because we're, we're programmed, or not programmed, but designed to pay attention to the culture editors, good or bad. So that's a way yeah, that it's survival, it's, right? It's a it's survival, survival issue. Yeah. And when we function at the survival level exactly right, then that it overrides everything, everything, logic and reasoning. It overrides everything. So how to get out of it? One, to be aware that this, this is culturally learned, and whatever we culturally learn, we can all learn. That's the first thing. And second... To be aware that we're social beings, and in order for us to come out and go beyond the pale, which is out of the out of the collectiveness, we have to find subcultures of wellness that support our no way our new way of looking at the world. Yeah. So, if you're 45 and you say within your culture, you know, I, 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 you're middle aged now, which it, it means nothing. Middle age is, is, is a cultural uh, um, aberration because it doesn't exist. Uh, when you ask centenarians, what is middle age? And they, one of them said, that's really dumb. You find out when you die. I don't know what that is. So they don't, they don't have that. But if, let's say you turn 45 and, and your culture says you're middle age. And then you say within the pale, uh, you know, I think I want to go back to school. And I want, oh, no, no, look, you're, for, you're, you're, you're 45. You start saving your money for your retirement. Uh, and, and they kill the joy. In a culture that you that you find and that you uh, with friends and people that you can select, say I'm, I, I'm now that I turned 45, I want to go back to school and get my PhD. Great. What are you going to major in? That's the kind of changing mm -hmm. of consciousness that you begin to find mm -hmm. with people affirming 
and confirming your sense of joy. Mm-hmm. Beautiful model for living. Beautiful and courageous acts for sure. I know some folks get frightened when they feel like they're moving out of the tribe, the tribal mentality. There's a lot of research about this way. Once upon a time, we couldn't survive outside of our tribe, right? We needed That's that right. that kind of unity. Today, what we can do, like you said, we can, we can unlearn on the personal level these learned ideas and inherited uh, beliefs. But now what we can do Dr. Martinez, is we can actually move outside of our little tribes that we were born into and find and start to select people um, that reflect health and wellness the way we do. It doesn't mean you have to completely let go of your family of origin, but what we can do is make choices about how much time we spend and how that supports us, correct? Yes, yes. I call it milligrams of love, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. of love that they can handle before they start putting you down. So you decide... Uh, and, and you decide between uh, guilt and resentment. You have, let's say you have a toxic mother. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you don't want to give up your toxic mother, and you say, okay, now. So you take it to extremes, and you say, if I don't see her in a year, what will I feel? And you might say guilt. If I see her every day for four hours, what would I feel? Resentment. Mm-hmm. So what are my milligrams of love? Once mm-hmm. a week for three hours, 50 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love When they go beyond that, you're going to find that she'll say, um, you don't look so good after three hours. Uh, what's, what's wrong with your hair? And at that moment, say, Mom, I love you. I have to go. That's right. Right? My my beautiful mother and I, we've danced this dance for so long. And, you know, know this, people. It's mutual. Don't think you're the only one irritated. You okay. know, the other person is not super happy either. What we're trying to do is point out that these are conscious choices. And some of the folks that we're in relationship with, or just at a different path on their conscious journey. So no judgment. I love the prescription. What? How many milligrams of love? Thank you. That's brilliant and so useful. And speaking of more intimate kinds of relationships, Dr. Martinez, let's talk about um, what some of the latest research is showing us uh, in terms of the trends in Western culture uh, based on, and you've done a lot of research over uh, the last uh, couple of decades based on couples that have been together over 40 years. So let's talk about this. Let's turn our attention a little bit. Okay. First is to be aware that now we have the, uh, the, the soulmate of the month. If this one doesn't work, I'll find another soulmate. <laughs> we, we really play with that word, which is really, really powerful and sacred. That's the first thing. But also, I think what happens is that we have a throwaway uh, society. We even have camps that you can throw away when when you don't need them anymore and get another one. So we uh, consider that if this doesn't work, then I just go somewhere else. Rather than going vertically and guardians of the heart, my model of relationship, you go vertically with a person, which means that that person becomes a universe for you, and you never, ever completely discover that person. Horizontal. If I know a lot of people, but very few people know me, I don't go deep with anybody and move on and on and on and on. And the soul, the soulmate of the month, that doesn't go anywhere. That doesn't work really well. But some of the ingredients that I found that work really for a relationship are things that, that I don't hear much pe- many people talking about, if at all. First is what I call judging the totality of the person. Let's say your partner. Your partner is not perfect like you're not and I'm not. So when we judge someone, we have a tendency subconscious and maybe more conscious to do it from a framework that we're perfect. So therefore, you made a mistake and you're imperfect. That's the first thing. Second, 
when you're judging someone and in discretion and in perfection, judge the totality of that person or who they are, who they've been with you for, for 20 years, and then take that totality and look at the actual condition that happened. So then you can put it in some perspective, forgive, deal with it, look at patterns and so forth. That's the first thing. The second thing is to be able to count on somebody, what I call precursors of reliability. You, uh, you say, you're going to do this, do it. Uh, do it. If you don't do it, uh, what happens is that the, the trust begins to um, drop and the, the, the ability to feel connected with that person begins to go, and then you blame it on, uh, oh, she's not brushing her, her teeth the way I like it. You blame it on symptoms rather than causes. This is very important for that foundation. I'm going to throw a curveball in here because it's up for everybody. It's on, if you live in Western culture right now, the archetypal thrashing, the battle is happening. And we don't have to characterize it that way. But when we come back from the break, I'd love for you to speak to how that social idea and construct is affecting the health and wellness of partnership, whether it's heterosexual and across the board. When we get, when we return right after these messages, sit tight more with Dr. Mario Martinez in just a moment. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? You know, I've been single for 15 years, and at this point, I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at 50-50, and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward, and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real-Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. Get high-quality glasses, sunglasses, and prescription lenses at eyeglasses.com. Choose from over 250,000 items and 400 brands. Already have frames? Get replacement lenses. It's easy. Go to our advertiser page and click eyeglasses.com. You have too little time to shop, so try Farm Fresh to you. They deliver organic food the way nature intended. Delivered straight to your home or office, economically. Visit our web advertiser page and click on Farm Fresh to you now. All positive talk with a mature edge. HealthyLife.net Welcome back to Real-Time Relationships. This is Dr. Marianne Camarado. And Dr. Mario Martinez is joining us today. We're talking about health and wellness, the impact our relationships have, the impact our inherited cultural beliefs has, and how we can navigate and move to and through the kind of health and wellness that we want to be experiencing in our lives. We've covered a lot of ground, genetics, uh, family dynamics, 
uh, our personal agency and so on. And now we're kind of moving into the direction of intimate relationship. Dr. Martinez, you've done lots of research uh, and created a model based on couples that have been together over 40 years that are still happy. Um, and the, some of the things you found is what you're sharing with us now. Uh, this work is called Guardians of the Heart, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, the impact our relationships have on our health and wellness in a more intimate kind of way. And you just pointed out for folks um, that the foundation really, uh, the sort of bifold foundation that folks need to have uh, right before we went to the break. But I want to talk a little bit about, before we get uh, move any deeper, into the, the social climate of this Me Too culture we're in, the political climate, what's happening between men and women, archetypally, this old paradigm. I'm going to just call it an old paradigm, old in the sense that it's really familiar, and we're in, in a change point, and it's very painful for people. Let's talk about the impact you see this is having on couples and their, their health and mental health and physical health. Uh, well, I think... Uh... When government becomes a religion, then, it, then it's really very difficult to, uh, to deal with it. And you have couples that have actually ended relationships because of difference in their political beliefs and social beliefs. And one of the things that I think is necessary, because we have to keep our identity, is to be able to respect each other's beliefs without trying to change them, without trying to force that per person to be what you want them to be. Uh, that's the first part. And, and second, that uh, to see if there's anything that that person could teach you from their perspective? Is there some novelty there you can pick up from their perspective? Not to be right, but to be wiser on both sides. So what that means is that you're respecting each other as individuals, and you're not forcing someone to be what you want them to be uh, by, uh, by intimidating or by withdrawing your love and all the other things that, that usually happen uh, in, in these divided times that we're living. Yeah, that's very important advice. How can we continue to stay in the field of love, and that would include not wanting to force anyone to abandon themselves or their truest and high values. This is, this is maturity at its finest, I think. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. Mature so, love. yeah, mature love. It's not necessarily heart something, knock your lights out, take you to the moon, okay? And that there's a reason for that. We did a whole other show on that. That you know, we, that that chemistry is is not necessarily a great litmus test for choosing a partnership. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how our the way we treat each other um, in intimate partnership affects our health, and some of the ways that the opposite of that is true, and, and some of those inherited beliefs we get in a relationship how we impact each other in terms of health and wellness. Yes, what I, what I did was to really go to what works and then develop theories around it. And what works in relationships, okay, you look at people that have been together for 40 years or, lo or longer, and they still laugh at each other's jokes, and they mm -hmm. still like each other, and they still <laughs> find uh, novelty in each other. And then you develop a theory to see how you can replicate that. And what I found is that these people, although some of them argue quite a bit, they argue with mutual respect, uh, they enjoy each other's company. They have rituals, which are really important, like uh, centenarians have rituals. They, for example, have, uh, let's say, candlelit dinner on Friday night. Every night they've been doing it for 40 years. And they don't do it because they have to. They do it because it's an exchange of breaking bread, which breaking bread is one of the causes of health, one of the strongest causes of health. So things like that. And they're constantly uh, 
learning new things about each other. Uh, and they are excited about being with each other, but they also have an individuality. They can be alone. They can be by themselves. So, for example, instead of compromising, compromising I think is a terrible thing. Let's say that, that a partner likes uh, the fine arts and the other partner likes um, um, baseball, whatever. Then rather than, than functioning like, uh, like robots and saying, okay, this week I'll go to your fine arts and then you go to my – that doesn't work. When you're forcing your partner to go to something, something they don't like, they resent it and you feel guilty. It doesn't work. So what, how do you do it? Then you allow that person to have their fine arts. You allow that person to have the baseball or whatever it is, and then you create a ritual that's better than the two. Uh, so they do their own, but then you create a ritual that's better than the fine arts and better than the baseball, and that becomes your mutual uh, ritual that has the harmony and the excitement. And then what happens is goodwill goes up because you mm -hmm. can go to your fine arts without any guilt or resentment, and the other person can do whatever they want, but then when you do your ritual, it's a celebration of the individuality that you're allowed to have uh, each other. I have to say that is so resounds true inside of my own being and my relationships, and I've seen myself in both of those scenarios. How about you in terms of your personal relationships? Oh, of course. Can you, can you see that you've been in both of those situations? Yes, yes, and I think that uh, that I have to practice my own. <laughs> my <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, we love that about you, that you live what you teach. It's one of my favorite things, and I think it's so important these days uh, to have our practitioners and, as you said, people in positions of power and authority who are um, actually practicing the, the theories and principles they're teaching us. So thank you for, for that. We love that about you. You're um, Oh, wonderful. So... In terms of, okay, so you're, you're not negotiating, you're not compromising, you're celebrating the pieces of relationship that really work for both of you, and including the differences as well. You're not yeah. ostracizing or making the person wrong. So let's talk about, in terms of biologically, um, the way this affects us. What are, what's happening in the brain when we're doing that, and how is this affecting our actual physical and overall health? When we're doing the negative, we're, we're feeling resentment, we're feeling guilt, uh, which are not really good emotions to have for a long period of time. They, they cause uh, all kinds of problems by uh, secreting the, um, the usual uh, suspects, the cortisol and epinephrine or epinephrine and so forth, uh, and they, they suppress immune function. And it's a battle mentality, which puts you into a, a, a helplessness. The battle is saying, I will uh, suppress the immune system for now, because it's more important to fight than to digest the food or fight the pathogens. But what if you stay within that pathology that is a constant fight, a constant fight for control? That doesn't work really well. But on the opposite, when you do the um, I will, I, I'm going to celebrate your individuality and you're going to celebrate mine, that causes a bonding that then secretes oxytocin, which are bonding uh, um, uh, nerves. And you have all kinds of things that are actually enhancing your health when you do that model. Yeah, yeah. But we're going to go to break. When we come back, Dr. Martinez, I'd love to talk about what happens when someone becomes ill, how we can navigate this in ways that are supportive and continue to move us towards health and wellness, especially if someone has really different values and ideas around their own health. Um, that they're in conflict with your own. So we're going to go to break. We'll be right back right here on Real-Time Relationships 
back in just a minute. Don't touch that dial. Do you have relationship questions? I wish my past relationships didn't affect my relationships now to the point that I project them onto my partner. I'm perpetually single. What does that mean? You know, I've been single for 15 years, and at this point, I can hardly even imagine what intimacy and total connection would even feel like. The part of my relationship with a man that I've had in my life for so many years that keeps me here and present is that the relationship is not just about me, about us. We come in at it 50-50, and it feels so good when you can help that other person move forward, and they can help you. To get answers to your relationship questions, call in to Real-Time Relationships with Marianne Camarado every fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on HealthyLife.net. Discover the world's largest anti-aging organization, Life Extension. For the best information, vitamins, and supplements, you just can't beat Life Extension. To start extending your life, go to the HealthyLife.net advertiser page and click on the Life Extension banner. For all your live or pre-recorded webcasting needs, come to EarthChannel.com. Get your web-based message out to a select group or the whole world. It's easy. A pioneer in webcasting, EarthChannel.com provides the best products and services to big corporations and government users. And now, this same technology is available to you. They have the best EarthCast encoders, servers, and products to meet your technical needs. But wait, don't want to mess with technical stress? No problem. They'll do it for you. EarthChannel.com is your answer. You can use webcasting for lots of things like advertising, marketing, customer support, training, and don't forget, web radio and TV. In fact, you're listening to a live EarthCast right now. So come to EarthChannel.com. Actualize your audio or video webcasting needs today. You can't beat the friendly service or the price. Call EarthChannel.com at 1-800-849-8978. That's 1-800-849-8978. Radio your way. HealthyLife.net. Everybody, we're so glad you've joined us today. Dr. Mario Martinez is here. We're talking about health and wellness as it relates to our relationship realm. Um, we had some friends over last night for dinner, and one of the things that my teacher always says, after a certain age, people start talking about themselves in terms of their ailments, right? You hear it, right? Oh, my hip, oh, my back, oh, my bladder, la, 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 right? So my teacher says, okay, we all get five minutes and that's it, and we're moving on. We're just not going to linger there. And I love this. So last night, sure enough, two of the folks that were here, one person was having this and having that and everybody, and I brought that up, and they loved it. It's like five minutes. Just say what's true, but we're moving on. We're not going to let that impact our the rest of our night. Talk to us about uh, what happens when in a couple relationship one person is ill and how – this can begin to affect um, the relationship itself, the very fiber, and how to help pull each other towards health and wellness versus pull us apart. Well, first prevention. In, in Guardians of the Heart, you make a commitment 
to uh, personal health. Why? Because if you don't, you're creating a burden for your partner. Now, if you get sick beyond what you've done to take care of yourself, that's different. But in many cases, people just don't, don't consider that in, in a relationship. A commitment to health is part of the relationship. You have to do that. You have to stay in good shape, and you have to eat well, and you have to live well. But let's say one of them gets sick. Well, immediately what happens is that there's a sense of uh, guilt, there's a sense of resentment, uh, and these things need to be talked out. They need to be expressed with each other. Uh, but the, the most important thing is to know that an illness is, is a signal that something's not, not working well. And what can the relationship do to indirectly help uh, to make a terrain that's incompatible with the illness? And I'm oversimplifying, but there's, there's a lot that can be done. And there's a lot of research that looks at when people are into a hopeful, loving relationship, it enhances uh, the possibilities of, of reversing an illness and, and, and actually uh, healing a lot, a lot faster. And again, that study from Harvard says that if you have someone that you can count on, that's one of the most powerful uh, sustainable kinds of, uh, of things that you can do for health. So you make a commitment to do whatever it is that you do, but here's the important thing. You never use the illness as a passport to not do what you don't want to do because that will happen. And let's say uh, your partner uh, gets sick in a way that they can't do something, uh, and you say, can you, uh, can you go, uh, let's go, let's travel. No, no, the fibromyalgia is not doing well. Never, ever use an illness even if you're sick, say, no, I don't want to go, but never because of the illness, because the brain, which looks at ways to manipulate the world, because, you know, we all try to have control. Ah, so illness, illness can get me this, so therefore I will use it. And, and cultures are really set up to support that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You say, yeah. You say to a friend, um, hey, let's go for a walk. No, no, look, I'm going to stay home and I want to meditate. Oh, meditate some other time. And they keep pushing until you say, oh, no, really, I have a migraine. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can I do anything mm -hmm. to help you? And mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that supports the illness. Absolutely. And I can even think of in my own personal life, I had panic. I think we've talked about this before. I had a panic disorder when I was a kid. And I was learning about secondary gain. And that was part of what helped me set me free, was yes. to not start to use the anxiety as a way to get me to not do things that were just uncomfortable or might trigger the panic. So I started talking about it openly and choosing people to be in relationships so I could show up and do the things I wanted to do and not feel shame that I had this fear of this panic coming up, right? This is so important to be able to yes. speak openly about what we're dealing with, but keep showing up for it. Okay, exactly. go on. Next and thing. There's another part, because of the secondary gains is, is, is known, but there's another part that is not very well known. And so, so the secondary gains will, will be, what is it that I don't have to do that I don't want to do because I have this problem? But there's another one that's, that's more subconscious and, and more pervasive, which says, what is it? that I don't have to do, that, that's good, but I don't feel worthy of doing it. Mm. And that's a real important, those two need to be asked if you, wanna, if you wanna heal, you have to ask those two questions in a very honest way for each other. Uh, because if you don't feel worthy of something, like people who win the lottery in the US, they keep it for, for a, uh, an average of 18 months. They can't handle that level of, uh, of good fortune. So you have to ask that question, of what is it that I, that I, and you will find also, another thing you can look for is that, what happened three months before the person was, quote, uh, diagnosed with an illness, and what's going to happen three months later, or six months before, six months after. And you'll find some correlation there that can help in the process of healing.
Oh, those are beautiful inquiries. And we can find some of this material in your most recent book, isn't that correct? Yes, The Mind, Body, Self is uh, the most recent. Uh, and and okay. it's really look, looking at how mind and body communicate within a cultural context. Gorgeous. We can get that wherever fine books are sold. Your website address for folks is? Uh, biocognitive.com, very simple, biocognitive, one word, dot com. Okay, great. Biocognitive.com, been there, great site. You're also going to be in the Bay Area coming up here uh, at the uh, CIIS, the uh, California Institute for Integral Studies. Tell us about what you're speaking on, and, uh, you know, let's give a shout-out so folks can come and meet you in person. Yes, that's going to be about the book, about the mind, body, self, and, and giving techniques and ways to deal with the things that I talk about. So on the 26th of, of October, it's going to be a, uh, a, an evening lecture, like a, almost like a, like a conversational type of thing. Then on the 27th and 28th, I'm going to do a workshop specifically on the book, and, uh, but really looking at the experiential part of the book. What are the things that we can do to make changes uh, once you learn what you need to change. Beautiful. Dr. Martinez, we're coming up to the end of our hour. Boo-hoo. I hate this part. <laughs> we don't want to do another hour. There's so much you have to share with us. What do you want to leave us with today? Uh, especially the power that the culture has. It has more power than genetics. It could be good or it could be bad. Genetics you can, you can um, manipulate with the culture. But I'll give you a very quick example. Uh, to see how powerful it is in, in yeah, Bolivia. Yeah, take your time. We have a couple minutes. So, okay. yeah, tell us the whole story. In <laughs> Bolivia, they have three levels of socioeconomics. They, uh, they have the whites, the mestizos, that are the mixture of, uh, of the natives and, and, and whites, and then they have the natives, or, what, or the Indians, but the natives. And if you're white uh, and if you're a mestizo, because a mestizo will identify with a white, if you have symptoms that in Western medicine they would be called anemia, then a Western doctor can take care of it, B12, or find out where the bleeding is coming from, and they can take care of it. But if you have the symptoms of anemia and you are a uh, native and the uh, shaman happens to diagnose you with what they call limpu, you die independent of any intervention from uh, Western uh, culture. Because the limpu means that the, the uh, ideology of, of uh, limpu is that you have been invaded by the uh, spirit of a, of a stillborn, and that spirit will consume your life and move, some, move on somewhere else to uh, consume another life. Amazing. They will die. But even more amazing, there was a, an agrarian reform in the 50s, and they gave the natives a lot of land. So they went up the scale from the mestizos. The mestizos could no longer identify with the whites. So when the mestizos had the symptoms of anemia and, uh, and the shaman... Uh, diagnose them with limpus, they would also die, which they, they wouldn't be. Unbelievable. That's outrageous. Nocebo effect. Yeah. Wow. So, folks, we have choice points here. Not what we think, Dr. Mario Martinez. What a delight, as always. Thank you. Uh, a real privilege and a pleasure to have you on the program. Please come back again and let us know what's next for you. My pleasure, and thank you for the fine work you do. Oh, thank you so much. Have a beautiful and successful event. Everybody go to MarianneCamerata.com for more information. We'll get you the links. Uh, in the meantime, sit tight. We'll be back in just a minute for our wrap. Thanks again. 
Radio your way. HealthyLife.net. But I don't know about you, but I'm just delighted. I love Dr. Martinez. I know you do, too. He has devoted his life to helping make our lives better. His books are like food for the soul. I hope you get a chance to go and see him out in San Francisco uh, coming up October 26th through the 28th. You can go to my website for more information. You can go to his um, and uh, in the meantime, yeah, just sending him lots of gratitude for what he does. And, and from me to you, that you might take some of these inquiries, try them on. Try them on for real. See if you can move some of those old inherited beliefs aside and make space for health and wellness. And inside of your relationship, great advice was given here. Listen to the program again. I know I will be. Um, until next time, come back and join us. Be well and healthy, and I wish you every blessing. Until then, take care.